Dear Heavenly Father, we read this morning in Bible class how your spirit was present with the early disciples, how when they prayed, you shook the physical building. And we pray that you would help us to be open in this day to be shaken in our spirits, to be moved by your spirit, to be given over to your will and purpose for our lives. We pray that you would come and bless us now through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, and through the power of your son, Jesus Christ. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been reading in Genesis about Abram. And... I guess my first reaction after last week was, well, maybe, maybe uh, we're talking too much about Abram. But when I looked and I saw the next account, I really, really felt that it was uh, an important event in Abram's life. And I wanted to, want to read today from Genesis chapter 13. I'm going to go back and I'm going to repeat uh, the first four verses from the last time I preached. Genesis chapter 13, starting with the first verse. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, under the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together, and there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwell then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go up to the right, or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, 
and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent, and came, and dwelled in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. You know, I remember this account from some of my earliest days in Sunday school. And in some ways, it seems like such a, a, a simple story. But perhaps that's what we need. The past two weeks, as I've been thinking about this account, I also had the opportunity to hear someone speak on generosity. And it just struck me that Abram was the epitome of generosity. And this story today is just one example of that. And as I looked at, uh, I read some things from some different authors and uh, very instrumental in, uh, folk, in forming my thoughts today. Um, one author, Brad Formsma, had seven different ways you could be generous. There's uh, another author, actually a, a SUNY uh, Stony Book professor, and he wrote a book, uh, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, and he had... Seven, he had ten different ways you could be generous. But today I've, I've selected about eight, not totally the same as either one. But these were the things that the Lord laid on my heart. Generosity. As believers, we think about generosity, and I think, or I hope perhaps, that the first thing that should come to our mind, the G in generosity, so to speak, is the gospel. Mark sixteen fifteen. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, or to the whole human race. Now, 
we're supposed to be generous with the gospel. But have you ever had someone come to you and beg you for the gospel? Has anyone ever approached you and said, please, please, I need the gospel? Probably not. More likely, you were like Peter and John, as we had in last week's lesson in Bible class. The man seeking alms came to, came to them and says he asked for alms. He was expecting money. So one of the important things about generosity is that we have to realize that there's almost always a disconnect between what people think they need and what they really need. Or what we think they need and what we really need. So it's important, I think, to uh, focus on the example of Jesus and think about generosity in a way that sharing the gospel starts with meeting other people's needs, meeting their immediate needs, trying to see how we can do, what we can do to help them in order that they would be open to hearing the gospel. The thing that sticks out about the story today that we read in Genesis with Abraham is the fact that he gave Lot first choice. Well, I don't know, I, perhaps, uh, perhaps this is obvious, but in the Middle Eastern or Eastern cultures, Deference was always given to the person that was older. It was Abraham's right. It was Abraham's entitlement. The next E in generosity. He was entitled to have first choice. He was entitled to choose the best. But Abraham gave this up. He gave up his rights to first choice. He gave up his rights to the best. He offered Lot the first choice. If we think about Jesus' example in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery here, the Greek word has to do with grasping or trying to retain, trying to retain Jesus' advantage, trying to retain Jesus' entitlement as being the Son of God. Jesus gave this up. 
Verse 7 says, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here we see Abram also gave up his entitlement, gave up his rights. N stands for network or the sphere of influence. If we look at what Abram's already done for Lot, we can see Lot's father has passed away. Abram, in a sense, has become his father, his mentor figure in his life. From the scriptures we read today, it appears that Lot went with him to, to Egypt. It appears that Lot has become very wealthy due to the influence of Abram, doing, being in Abram's network, his sphere of influence. But Lot doesn't seem to have realized that he was already in the best sphere of influence. Instead, he chose a different sphere of influence. He chose to move closer to Sodom. Each of us, as believers, when we see someone who needs our generosity, we have more than just our personal, we can bring more to this than just what we have personally, whether it be money, skills, Our fellowship of believers can be a network that can help people. And ultimately, we know that our sphere of influence, the goal, is to bring others to Christ. First Corinthians 12, 12 says, For the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. And like the apostles who each had their own gifts, we can work with each other and use our sphere of influence generously to help others. The second E in generosity, encouragement. Words of encouragement. How many times have you needed words of encouragement? How many times have you been encouraged by others? Hebrews 10.25, Apostle Paul writes again, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting or encouraging one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We read today in Bible class about Barnabas, the son of consolation. That's the son of encouragement. And if you notice, that wasn't his the name given by his mother was not Barnabas, it was Joseph or Joseph. He was nicknamed 
the son of encouragement. Why do you think that was? When Paul came to Jerusalem and everyone was afraid of him, Barnabas went out and embraced him and encouraged him. When John Mark failed as a missionary, Barnabas stood by him and encouraged him. It's easy. It costs us nothing. Perhaps it's not always easy, but it costs us nothing to encourage other people to speak a kind word to someone. What about the R? Reflection. Our thoughts. Encouragement usually is something that's external, but internal. Internally, sometimes we need to bring our internal into a line with our external encouragement. Do we have thoughts towards others? that are not generous? Do we think, there they go again. They're always like this. Satan always wants to tempt us to think badly of others. We talked in Bible class this morning, Brother Tim asked, what's the difference between uniformity and unity? A lot of times it just comes down to love. Overlooking our differences and seeking the best for each other. And it's important that that's not just something on the surface. It's something that we intentionally think about, that we reflect about. Philippians 4.8 The Apostle Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Think lovely thoughts about your brother and sister in Christ. Think lovely thoughts about the person you meet on the street. Think lovely thoughts about your neighbor. And forgive. Seventy times seven. That, of course, is a metaphorical number, not one we're supposed to count to. Oh, our ownings, our possessions, our stuff, our things. Sometimes, sometimes these might have material value in our mind, but sometimes there's a sentimental value that we have about things we own, things we, we perhaps don't want to share. 
if I have a new vehicle and it hasn't been dented or creased yet, and one of my children comes and wants to borrow it, this shudder goes through my body, right? And it's like, okay, well, is this the only choice we have? Well, okay, but please, please be very, very careful, right? Why am I worrying more about the car than I'm worrying about the person? Who really owns, who's really the owner of our possessions? We know it's God. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, David had a longing, a very sentimental longing, to have water from the well at Bethlehem. And three of his men went through, fought through a garrison of soldiers, and retrieved water and brought it to him. And what did David do with that? He poured out that offering to God. He couldn't consume it himself. He poured it out to God. So, with all of our ownings, all of our possessions, we need to be willing. Number seven, the S. Silver and gold, money. Perhaps this seems a lot the same as our possessions. But in some ways, it's uh, less intimate. On the other hand, sometimes it's even more troubling. Again, Peter and John, when they went up to the temple, the lame man asking for money. Peter and John said, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have we give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. We know that in the Old Testament that the children of Israel were asked to to tithe, to give 10%, and also to bring other sacrifices. We know in the New Testament we don't have specific amounts specified. The Apostle Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. 
Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So we find that it's important here not just to give of our silver and gold, of our money, but to give cheerfully, to have the right attitude. We used to have a game that we used to play with our children. It was like the game of life, except instead of seeing if you could get the most money by the end of the game, could you put the most money in your heavenly treasure chest? So as you went around the board, you would have opportunities to give and to put money in your heavenly treasure chest. But every time you had an opportunity, you were also tested. Your attitude was tested. You had to draw a card from the attitude pile. And if your attitude was wrong, your money just went back to the bank. If your attitude was right, it went into your heavenly treasure chest. Again, the Apostle Paul said, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay up by him in store as God has prospered him. The I. Intentness. A lot of times we like to talk about intentionality here. When I say intentness, though, I mean something slightly different. Our attention, our acknowledgement. One of the books I read related to the story. Uh, the author came upon a person that was uh, asking for alms and he didn't have any money with him. But he saw that there was a fast food place next door, and he said, well, I don't have any money, but I can go, I have a credit card or debit card, oh, and I can, I can get you something. What would you like? And it was by the fact that the weather was cold, the person said they wanted a milkshake. And he said, well, that's not it. I'll get you a milkshake and, and a meal. So he went and he bought the milkshake and the meal, brought it back to the person that was asking alms. And she said, thank you for acknowledging me. You know, a lot of times, people they seek that, acknowledge, that acknowledgement. They want to be seen. The Gottman Institute, founded by a husband and wife, does a lot of studies about marriages and what it takes to keep marriages together. And they found that people, spouses that stay together in marriage, 
that they have this practice, unknowingly, perhaps, that when their spouse bids for attention, bids for connection, they respond. What does that mean? That means when your spouse comes to you and says, Oh, look at this cute cat video on Facebook. Wouldn't you just love to spend 10 minutes watching it with me? You respond, Of course, honey, I would love to watch a cat video with you. Guess what? That's not my natural response. But what they found was is that these mundane, these mundane requests, these bids for some type of connection, some type of human acknowledgement that the person was seen, that the person is important, that those that had successful marriages, 80% of the time, they responded in a positive way. They responded, they moved towards the person and responded in the affirmative. So we need to give the, generation, the, the generosity of intentness or attention or acknowledgement. This is important. We look at Peter and John coming up to the temple again from Bible class two weeks ago. The lame man says, who's seen, Jesus, who's seen Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Peter and John looked at him intently. They focused on him. The Apostle Paul, the crippled man at Lystra. The same man heard Paul speak. And when Paul, steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, spoke to him, in the name of Jesus, rise up, be healed. Again, he steadfastly beheld him. He looked on him. He acknowledged him. Time. Jesus always made time in his busy ministry. Abraham took the time to settle this dispute with Lot, came apart to help Lot, to talk with Lot face to face. Jesus was going to heal Jairus' daughter, and the woman with an issue of blood came and distracted him, interrupted him. Jesus took the time to heal her, to speak to her. Jesus took the time to go to Jairus' daughter to heal her as well. The woman at the well, Jesus' disciples went to get something to eat. Jesus took the time to sit down with the woman at the well. It takes time to be generous. In the Western world, perhaps, this is one of our 
most expensive things, expensive gifts that we can give to people to be generous. Finally, the why. Yourself. Generosity means giving of your talents, giving of your gifts. What, how has God made you unique? What can you give back from the way that God has made you? What can you give back from what God has given you, whether it be little or much? Mark 12, 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and how that many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. The Amplified says, this added up to half a cent. And Jesus called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So we may think perhaps we don't have large talents, perhaps we don't have large spiritual gifts, but we can still give of ourselves. We can still be generous. The promise, Proverbs eleven, twenty-five: The liberal soul, the generous soul, shall be made fat, shall prosper. And he that watereth, he that refresheth others, shall be watered or refreshed also himself. So those treasures in heaven are important. Storing up treasures in heaven doesn't take a lot of money, doesn't take a lot of wealth, but it does take a lot of giving of ourselves. close, I want to read you something that uh, touches my heart every time I read it. The Richest Family in Church by Edna Ogden, or Eddie, as she's often known. I'll never forget Easter 1946. I was 14. My youngest sister was 12. My oldest sister was 16. We lived at home with our mother, and we did without many, many things. My father had died five years before, leaving mom with seven school-aged children and little money. By 1946, my older sisters were married and my older brothers had moved out, leaving the three of us and my mom. A month before Easter, the pastor of our church announced that a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and give sacrificially When we got home, we talked about what we could do. 
we decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 of our grocery money for the offering. We thought that if we kept our electric lights out as much as possible and didn't listen to the radio, we could save money on that month's electric bill. My sister and I got jobs cleaning clean yards and houses and babysitting. And we also bought cotton loops to fashion into potholders to sell for a dollar. We made $20 on potholders alone. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day we counted the money to see how much we had saved. At night we'd sit in the dark and talk about how that poor family was going to enjoy having the money that the church would give them. We had about 80 people in our church, so we figured that whatever amount of money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times as much. After all, every Sunday, the pastor again reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, my sister and I went to the grocery store, and we got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and and a $10 bill for all of our change. We ran all the way home to show our mother We had never seen so much money before. That night, we were so excited we could hardly sleep. We didn't care that we wouldn't have new clothes for Easter. We had $70 for the sacrificial offering. We could hardly wait for church. On Sunday morning, rain was pouring. We didn't have an umbrella, and the church was a mile from our home, but we walked in the rain. My sister had to get cardboard in her shoes to fill up the holes. The cardboard came apart, and her feet got wet. But we sat in church proudly. I heard other teenagers behind us talking about how we still, we, they had new dresses and we were still in our old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes, but I felt rich. When the sacrificial offering was taken, we were sitting in the second row from the front. Mom put in the $10 bills and each of us children put in the, 20, put in the 20s. As we walked home after church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise for us. She had bought a dozen eggs, and we had boiled Easter eggs with our fried potatoes. Late that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went to the door and talked with him for a moment, and when she came back, she had an envelope in her hand. We asked what it was, but she didn't say anything. She opened the envelope, and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one crisp $10 bills, and 17 $1 bills. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, just sat and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. I didn't want to even go back to church. Everyone there probably knew that we were, must know that we were poor. We sat in silence for a long time. Then it got dark and we went to bed. All that week, we went to school and came home, and no one talked much. Finally, on Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What did poor people do with money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. And we didn't want to go to church on Sunday, but Mom insisted that we go. Although it was a sunny day, we didn't talk on the way. Mom tried to sing, but no one joined in, and she only completed one verse. At church, we had a missionary speaker. He talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would put a roof on a church. At the end of the service, the minister said, Can't we all sacrifice to help these poor people? 
We looked at each other and we smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to my oldest sister. My oldest sister gave it to me and I handed it to my younger sister. My youngest sister put it in the offering. When the offering was counted, the minister announced it was little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from our small church. He said, you must have some rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given $87 of that little over $100. We were the rich family in church. Hadn't the missionary said so? From that day on, I'd never been poor again. I've always remembered how rich I am because I have Jesus. Eddie, as she was known, went on to be rich in Christ the rest of her life. She and her husband had one child of their own, but adopted 11 other children and raised them. She and her husband fostered 77 children over their lifetime. For decades, she wrote letters of encouragement to missionaries, telling them about the experiences of her families, and she always included gifts for the children of missionaries and for those that they were ministering to in her writings. At age 88, she passed on to be with the Lord. But her generosity lives on in believers everywhere. When we have Jesus, we can be generous because we are rich. Please give generously, even if it's only your time. May God bless his word.